Blog Talk Radio. It's 10 o'clock on Monday night, and that means it's a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that dares to mix comics and politics. This is the show for folks who wonder if Cyborg, Iron Man, the Bat Computer, or even Brainiac are able to get the Obamacare website to work. Uh, tonight is part two. Not, not a funny one. Uh, so tonight is part two of our New York Comic Con coverage where we continue to discuss uh, Steven Universe, Adventure Time, and the renounced, uh, DC's announced return of Stephanie Brown to the New 52. Uh, I'm joined by Alana, who is actually present at New York Comic Con. How are you doing? Yes. Yes, and I survived, and I continue to tell the tale. <laughs> Still uh, no, no nerd flu to report from the convention? I have a nasty cold, but I don't think I can. I think some my headers are not even nasty. I have a cold, but I don't think I can even blame Comic Con. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Made it through. I got my flu shot in advance, which I highly endorse, because there were absolutely people full of cooties in attendance, but also fantastic people. Actually, one of the things that I noted this year um, was because my fiance asked. There were fewer people dressed in Legend of Korra or, or Avatar-related costumes this year in the past. I don't know if that reflects lack of enthusiasm over season two of the show, or I don't know. I mean, there, there were some, but it was fewer. I'm thinking about the cosplay, that was kind of surprising. Because like, maybe we were just paying really close attention to it, but in the past years there were so many people with amazing Avatar-themed costumes. Um, and, you know, I'm still hoping to get Brett into the comic series so we can talk about it on the show sometime in the future. I, I will absolutely read it. Um, one of our good, other contributors, good. and we, sh- we should have him on, uh, Scott is like really into the um, cartoon show and has been doing reviews of the episodes. So we, yeah. should, just have a, we should have him up on the, uh, on the show. Um, yeah, we're definitely going to have an all-Avatar all episode. Yes. Future, yeah, like yeah. We've had our all-Adventure Time episodes in the past. I honestly oh. would have no idea what Korra cosplay looks like, so I don't even know what to look for. But the question, because I've noticed it at other conventions, and it kind of moves into our first topic, would be great. Um, did you see a lot of Adventure Time cosplay? Yes. I saw a lot of Adventure Time cosplay. Um, a lot of it was really like, I mean, maybe 50% of it is just somebody wearing a hat that they bought. Yeah. You know? And then the other 50% were people doing really good, creative, neat costumes. Um pretty even mix of different sub-characters, you know. I've yet to see somebody show up as, like, Slime Princess successfully, or even better, Bounce House Princess, but um, there were lots of really wonderful different Princess Bubblegums and Marceline the Vampire Queens and and uh, Fiona's and, uh, yeah, a lot of guys in half-assed thin costumes and girls in really good costumes, I think, is really consistent. That's kind of generally. That's a lot of what I've noticed. Yeah, that's what a lot of I've noticed too. Is like the, especially when it comes to like the princess costumes are amazing. Though I've seen some really sweet Ice King ones. Um, but yeah, I've kind of noticed that. I was just wondering because like the other thing I know of a lot of cons was it was very popular for families. So like the dad or mom Mm -hmm. would be one, and then the kids would be a bunch of other stuff, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, yeah. No, that's actually one of the the two things I think I was most trumped by. Actually, though, were one I don't know maybe I mentioned this, but there actually was a girl who came and dressed up as one of the characters from Steven Universe, which isn't even launched yet, and that was pretty amazing. 
to come as a character from a show that hasn't even launched yet. Yeah, um, and I also it. saw a little boy who was like, like literally a dead ringer for Dipper from Gravity Falls. And I had to <laughs> sort of keep myself from interrupting because when we were in a panel being like, oh, my God, do you know how exactly like Dipper you look? Said, yes, I'm sure you know exactly how much I Dipper you look. Um, but that show's definitely gotten a bigger following now than before as well. Uh, I don't know if there's any comics on the horizon for that series, so it's, it would be cool to see that happen. Uh, Gravity Falls? Mm-hmm. Uh, not that I know of. So one with Steven Universe, i got to say, like, I'm very, very happy you, you kind of turned me on to it. So they sent us two videos to promote, and one's like the main title, and there was a little bit clip of it. Those people, I mean, they love that video. I think it's up to forty or 50,000 views at this point, and hundreds of comments. Um, overwhelmingly positive. I mean, the love for this show that hasn't even aired yet is very apparent and kind of impressive. Um, yeah. So it's one I'm really looking forward to checking out, so that should be pretty cool. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's right now I believe it's the only show that has essentially a female showrunner in animation, and that's really depressing. It's the only one. Um, that, oh, sorry, in, in TV animation at this point. Uh, and I think there's really a hunger for those voices right now, um, and for and to support that. And one of the actually one of the initiatives of the pieces across my desk today was that uh, be in the Puppy Cat, which is an online, which was like a one single episode, amazing um, show by Natasha Allegri. Uh, who works on Adventure Time and also did the Fiona and Cake, is the inventor of Fiona and Cake and did the Fiona and Cake comics, um, that's going to have a huge Kickstarter. And on the one hand, I'm really excited because there's a ton of people supporting it online. I mean, just a ton. They're, told, they're totally easily going to make their um, fundraising goals. But what frustrates me is, like, why does she have to do a Kickstarter, you know? Like, why isn't there institutional support for this really popular, you know, show creator? Like, why, why you know, why, why, why isn't this going to be on TV? Why is this only for the web? Why does she have to fundraise by a Kickstarter? And Federator Studios are the ones who are helping her with the Kickstarter, too. So, you know, it's like, okay, I know it's an indie thing, but it seems really sad that Disney or whomever hasn't, isn't looking for these voices, especially when it's someone like her who's really proven herself. You know, this isn't like a random Joe saying, here, go look at my DVD that I made. This is like someone who actually worked in the industry and has a reel you can look at and see, like, wow, she's freaking incredible. So, but it's kick-started on the left. And, of course, in their language, they're talking about the creator control and how it's great that's going to be the way it's done. It'll, but I, I just have to keep wondering, like, do people really want to run their shows that way? They really want to have to fundraise for themselves every damn time. Yeah, I always kind of wonder that. If, I mean, there's there's been some that are very, very successful going back over and over and over again. Um, and what, at least comic-wise, it seems to Kickstarter has been evolved into is an incubator in that I've got this idea. I need somebody to either get like a small print run or pay the artist. It, um, mm-hmm. it works, and then some publisher picks me up. Um, yeah. 
and I've seen that more and more, and I'm kind of I go back and forth with that because you know my my contribution is to get your book printed, not necessarily land you some gig with a bigger publisher. And the few times that I or the the almost every time that I've had that happen, um, other than one creator, I've wound up as a contributor getting screwed, and the book gets delayed, or something else changes, and it's really? just not. Yeah, like I can think of two right now at the top of my head. Um, one outright said, you know, we were looking for a, a publisher with this, and then it was supposed to come out, I think, early this year, and they wound up delaying it to some point this quarter, if we're lucky, um, oh because they wanted to time a release with the publisher, and it's just like that's not what I contributed money for. I contributed to right. get a printed book, um, you know, it, it, I understand where they're coming from, but to me, it it kind of sucks as a contributor. So overall, I've become much much cooler on Kickstarter as a whole. But that's a rant for a whole other time. They won't be winning. That's publisher But of I, just, year. I just feel yeah. like, well, one, I mean, this seems like a super secure Kickstarter because it's related to an unknown independent studio. But I'm just frustrated that there aren't women. These women aren't getting more support. I guess, especially since their audience is clearly really exist for it, you know? Yeah, I'm a little shocked that, uh, I mean, maybe they just don't, it hasn't hit their radar yet or some legal stuff's too complicated and, um... You know, I mean, but, animation it, has, requires big budgets, I get it, but this is, this is the stuff. I just saw a whole new slate, actually, of animated shows coming up through, um, on Disney Channel. I'm just like, what if the heck are these ones? You know, they're not... Yeah. They're really not as much of what I'm actually looking for. I mean, okay, whatever. I'm 33, so maybe I'm not the intended audience. But I do primarily watch children's cartoons. I think I have some sense of these things. <laughs> anyway, anyway I know what folks actually want to hear. I'm sorry, go ahead. Where, where, where I was about to say, perfect, uh, perfect to move into it is, speaking of cartoons, our first topic yeah. is Adventure Time. Yeah, yeah. They had uh, The panel was probably the hardest to get into panel that I've ever been into and Comic-Con, and I just really want to thank the New York Times Talk for getting us in because Comic-Con does not know how to get press into rooms, and they've made a commitment that they were going to help us do it, and they successfully did it. They actually got us in by hook or by crook, um, and the lines are just of people who are absolutely out of control, um, so... That's really thankful. The diversity of the audience is great. You know, adults and children, both, for sure. And, um, you know, we, we had uh, on the panel Rebecca Sugar, who is one of the artists and writers. Uh, Pendleton Ward is the creator of the series. Um, uh, John DiMaggio, voice actor, who many of us know also from Futurama and also this Jake, and um, uh, Jeremy Shadow, who is the voice of Finn, who has become a teenager, like, absolutely, in ways that are confusing if you're, you know, watching the show. Um, they definitely have aged the character with his voice, but it's interesting hearing him speak in his real voice because he is definitely doing a child's voice when he's acting. He, his voice is not that high, obviously, anymore, because I think he's, like, 16 or 17 or something like that, so... I actually felt physical pain hearing him having to raise his voice that high. You know, I, I wouldn't want to have to do that. That's pretty hard. So, um, 
you know, it's funny. I feel like on almost anything that John DiMaggio is on, John DiMaggio takes over. You know, he's just one of those big personalities, and he's super charming. So when you're in a, on, a, on a panel with a lot of people who are writers and therefore more likely to be introverts, it's, it's pretty easy for it to be like, you know, John DiMaggio show. The good news is the John DiMaggio show is hilarious. So if you're interested in um, laughing your ass off, it's a pretty good panel to be at. Um, we learned some interesting things. Uh, I actually got to interview him one-on-one later. Um, I know that one of the things I really felt over the course of the series is that, sure, like we all know that Finn's character has matured and aged over time, but I'd really gotten the feeling that you could sort of hear that in Jake the Dog's voice as well, um, and I was wondering if he actually was making a choice to make him sound more thrown up or if it was really just like, this is in the writing and it's not in the acting at all. And he's like, no, I'm doing the same, doing the same voice as I had been before, so it's definitely from the acting if you're sensing that. Um, and it's something that I know some other folks have noticed as well about the character. Interesting. Um, you know, what, yeah. what's, so I kind of haven't been watching a whole lot, though I have been reading the comics. Um, what is it with the aging that's going on? Because it's rare in a cartoon to see characters actually age. Yeah, I mean, obviously they're aging much more slowly than than an actual, like, young teenage boy would, you know, does in real life, where, like, I'm not sure how many shoe sizes you go through in a year at that point in your life. But um, the character has definitely gone from being much more of a older boy to being a teenager. And he's still a young teen, but without a doubt, Finn's voice matures and his character matures throughout the show. And the show really has embraced that, not just for him, but for all of the characters, I think. Um, one of the things that I really always loved about Venture Brothers was that it was a show where characters were able to grow and change, uh, often not necessarily mature because it's Adventure Brothers, but definitely, you know, in Adventure Time, you also have characters who grow and change and mature, and um, you also really get greater sense of depth of a lot of the surrounding cast and the surrounding ca- you know the cast even the main cast outside of Finn and Jake basically are a lot of really interesting female characters and I sort of wondered you know over time these characters like Princess Bubblegum and Lady Rainicorn have actually become more active creatures and more I don't know traditionally heroic um, and whether that was a choice that the writers had made to make them more active or and it, it seems my, my read from the conversations that I've had with the writers is that partially they've taken that dynamic because they've had more time to explore those characters now. When you're just starting the show, it's going to just be about the leads, and you're not going to have time to really show uh, as much depth in the uh, surrounding cast. But it was definitely, when you look to see who's, who wrote some of the most action-driven episodes with the female the characters, it's a lot of the female writers actually who are the ones getting it done. So I'm sure that's significant, you know. Um, and it's interesting because I didn't even need, when you have like a character who's a super scientist and a leader like Princess Bubblegum, you don't even need her to be an action hero because she's already freaking badass, right? So having her actually also be in a couple episodes where she's the one who is literally fighting bad guys was almost above and beyond the call of duty, uh, and that the show has really done that. Although I, I was 
I, I have heard folks who said that having Princess Bubblegum be a scientist was not in the original show plan. It's something else that also came from, you know, have a lot of the, of the women in, who were working on the show. So that's one of the reasons it's great to have diverse writers' rooms, ladies and gentlemen. You took the words right out of my mouth because that's exactly what I was going to say. This is what happens when you have diversity yeah. in the writing room. Absolutely. I mean, and Kevin Ward has a great attitude about these things in the first place, too, though. I mean, one thing, he was the person who made those hires. Um, but, you know, when I interviewed him a number of years back and I talked about the female characters, he's like, I wanted them to be people who were characters who I would have wanted to hang out with and that I thought would be interesting. And that was not going to be a Smurfette character who was, you know, you're only defining characteristic as being female. It was going to be more than that. And when they have episodes that delve into even the more ridiculous sounding and character, female characters, like Slime Princess, you know, she finally was in a primary character in an episode, and she's a lot more interesting than, you know, when you're given the time to spend with these characters, you, you learn a lot more about them, and they, they develop depth and agendas, and, you know, it really shows how much of a benefit it's been that the show's had time to really grow and expand on those characters. So um, what was that? I, I, on the pa- I was going to say, on the panel, like, what what do they generally cover um, during um, they, it? You know, they talk so, yeah, yeah, they, they talk a lot about what was coming up for the new season um, in terms of just showing clips and sort of talking about that. I don't have any spoilers for anyone. I know that they definitely said that the backstory and history of a lot of the characters was going to continue to get filled in, which I'm sure is not a surprise to anyone, and that's what everyone's constantly asking about. Um, regardless, right? Um, And, uh, you know, people in the audience ask that stupid question they always ask about, like, you know, how are you trying to work around the sensors and stuff like that? And, you know, Penn always handles it really well. He's basically like, there's nothing sneaky happening. We, you know, we do get notes if something's too dark, but we always figure it out. And um, that it's not, they're not, like, trying to sneak in. And I I really do believe that they're not trying to sneak in stuff. I, I mean, I do think that the gay marriage episode is the gay marriage episode, but I don't feel like that's sneaking things in. That's a completely transparent metaphor, and it's not like drugs and sex, and, you know what I mean? It's just a message about tolerance, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually would have liked to have been able to talk with him more about that issue specifically, but uh, one of the great lines I actually got from the panel is um, from Ken, who said, puberty is uncomfortable to write and uncomfortable to watch. I think is something that you really experience seeing the show. And Jeremy Shadow added, um, and an uncomfortable to voice act. <laughs> yeah. Did they, because um, I haven't heard, heard him talk about, like, did they explore, like, where generally the whole idea came from to begin with? No, I've never heard I mean, of I mean, it was sort of, like, based on his own yeah, fantasy world ideas from, from from growing up and his stories. But, you know, he's someone who knew he wanted to be an animator from a really young age. You know, his mom even cold-called Matt Groening when he was a kid to say, my son wants to meet with you and you have to meet him. And this is, she's just, she's not like some Hollywood connected. She's like literally a mom like any other mom. And, yeah. and she did that, you know. Um, and he's a big advocate for making your own, doing flip books and stuff like that to do your own animation. Um, 
One of the interesting things I really learned, actually, is that Pendleton did not come up with the idea of the Ice King having this tragic history as Simon, and that backstory was written by another writer who was looking for a solution for the Holly Jolly Christmas episode. So that's huge, because I actually think that the development of that, fac- of that facet of the character really catapulted the show to be that much more of an obsession, really, more than just a show that had fans, but to be, like, really heavily invested, fan, like, a fandom, you know, like, Trekkie-level craziness and intensity, yeah. was that kind of stuff getting built out. And that's, again, something that happened from his writing team. Uh, that wasn't part of the original plan, you know. I think he's a really good collaborative writer, it sounds like. One of the really neat things I learned is that they, have you ever heard of ex- exquisite corpse um, writing technique? It's, no. Uh, it's a game. It's a writing game. I've actually done it myself. That the surrealists invented. Um, and basically, you write a line of a story, and you fold the paper. And then the next, and sorry, you write a line. You write the first two lines of the story. You fold the paper, and so the person after you can only see the second line and not the first line. And then they write the next line based on the line that they see, and they fold it. So each person can only see one line ahead of them, and it, and it builds the story over the course of the game. And the writers of Adventure Time actually use writing games like that as brainstorming sessions. <laughs> I say that explains so much. <laughs> no, yeah. it's, it's actually really, really cool. I, I kind of like, the, I dig that, that that's, it sounds like a very collaborative effort and not just yeah. like one person's vision of like, we are going to do this, you guys fill in the blanks, um, but we're going to do X, Y, and Z. So that's actually really, that's neat to hear. I mean, I love hearing how creative it is and collaborative. And they also have a game where they will have someone draw a character, and then they'll have, like, ten minutes to work out a whole story around the character, a whole backstory. And I think that's one of the questions, right, where all these small side characters have these rich in their lives, because I bet a lot of those, you know, characters you just catch a glimpse of, like when somebody drew them, they came up with this whole crazy story, backstory for them. I think it's brilliant, you know. And I think that... The fact that these writers are using these creativity games that a lot of folks like myself, for example, you know, did when we were kids in our various and sundry art camps. Um, I think that shows, you know, we have, you have to just kind of keep exercising those parts of your brain and, and that there really is, a, you know, a real collaborative writer's room that is part of the show. Uh, oh, fun, fun fact. You know, in the episode uh, that's, called Simon and Marcy, Tom Kinney, who plays the voice of the Ice King, he actually did not know the Cheers song, which is the Ice King sings in this episode. So this was basically a way to teach it to him on the show, and the fact that he wasn't really singing the actual whole song, he said he would sing the concert reasons, obviously, and um, also just kind of made it a little bit more, I don't know, disjointed in, in, in an interesting and fun way. But I just love that, like, he didn't even know the song they were asking him to sing. So can he actually sing? Well, I mean, he sings it, like, as the Ice King, so... Well, I, I, was, I forgot what was... Uh, I was reading uh, a thing about, like, a history of, or facts he didn't know about... I think it was Nightmare Before Christmas. And mm-hmm. the person they they got to voice Jack Skeleton couldn't sing. Oh, wow. And they did... Yeah, and they didn't realize. That's why I asked. And then they didn't realize that, and so the all the songs are by a different person, mm-hmm. which I thought was kind of fascinating. So I mean, like, yeah, I, it sounds like it. Mm-hmm. 
because I, you know, who knows when they when they uh, voice, you know, or cast the person, you know, I don't know if they thought about like, oh, and you're going to need to sing at some point, like that was kind of on their mind. So I could almost see someone being like, oh crap, I actually can't do that. Um, and then them having yeah. to do something like that. That's the reason I asked. Well, certainly a lot of the folks on that show end up singing and love to sing. Um, you learned on the panel that uh, uh, the favorite song of Don DiMaggio from the whole series is Make and Bake and Pancakes. So she proceeded in leading the entire entire audience in singing along with um, two, two, two entire recitations of the entire song, Make and Bake and Pancakes. Uh, I hadn't realized that was such a thing. And then I actually saw that we love fine to sell tons of make and bacon pancakes t-shirts like that. <laughs> that was never a, a bit that particularly spoke to me, so I think that that's kind of funny. Uh, I mean, nothing wrong with it. It wasn't one of the things that I obsess over, you know. And then, of course, the thing that from the show that I always get my mind blown away for is something that no one's ever done anything with, which is the amazing comment from the balloons. Now we can float up to the mesosphere. Yay, now we can die. Like, no one has ever done anything with these, like, suicidal balloons who want to float up to the mesosphere and die. But that's kind of the most extreme thing that's ever been said on a children's cartoon, but there you go. Um, we also got to talk a lot. I, when I was interviewing Rebecca Sugar, I spoke with her a lot about her artistic process. Um, and I would have felt like a lot of the time you have these different writers coming in and drawing characters. And if you're really obsessive about the show, you can kind of start to see who and figure out who did which characters. But to the but to the to the to most people's eyes, they all just blend together so perfectly. And these are these different, you know, kind of drawing styles. I mean some characters have dot eyes, but not all the not all the characters have dot eyes, for example. Um Rebecca was talking about how she actually did an earlier job for Hansen Abadir, aka Marceline's dad, aka the devil of hell, essentially, and it was too much detail, and she had to sort of work on flattening her artwork and making it less detailed to work in the show. Hmm. And I think that one of the things that also came up a lot was that people talking about making sure that everything you're drawing, you feel like there's more happening outside of the frame, and that's something you really do see when you're watching the show. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the one that I kind of do notice is that the, the episodes I have watched it's a lot. It's a lot of. Um, there's more than just the characters catching your eyes. Like you really need yeah. to look around because you never know what you're gonna see. Um, as opposed to a lot of other shows where it's clearly like the same backgrounds being used over and over and over again and repetitive and boring and. So yeah, I mean, it's, that's actually really cool. And so, what creators did you actually get the interview from them? Uh, I got to speak with Rebecca Sugar for a while. God bless her for putting up with me for quite some time, actually. Um, <laughs> and I got to speak with um, Adam Mudo, who's like one of the story editors, basically, as well. I did not get to meet with Pendleton Ward. Unfortunately, he seems pretty fried. And the fact that, like, I'm sorry if that sounds fried, I've been, like, really exhausted from doing a ton of stuff. So he didn't end up coming back to talk with press. Um, and I, I choose to believe that that's why he made that comment about not wanting Finn to be a sissy, which broke my heart into a million tiny pieces. To me, the entire point of the show is that it defies those expectations. Yeah, at some point we'll we'll hopefully corner him and be able to actually ask a question about that. I didn't mean that. 
I don't know. It sort of seems like maybe he was trying to assert some additional masculinity, but it's like he was a hero boy. You don't have to assert that, you know. I don't know. Um, yeah, I can, I can kind of think of, like, what he meant by it, but there's better ways to but it. But it. like, it's exactly the wrong thing to say. When it's like, one yeah. of the radical things about this show is that you have a heroic, you know, boy character who also has emotions and, like, doesn't try to, you know, not not have them and cares about things. And that's pretty amazing and awesome. Um, a little fun fact towards the Banana Guard's voice is, John DiMaggio's version of doing LSP's voice, Wendy Space Ninja's voice. And if you hear them, you can you can actually hear that yes, that is what the banana cards are somebody else impersonating Candace Ward doing the Valley Girl. A lot of the folks working on the show grew up, you know, playing D and D and writing fanfic and just doing all the same and stuff that most of their audience above the age of ten, I guess, uh, do themselves, which I think says something about how these different geek activities can actually be really useful creativity builders and, and writing tools. I mean, you do have to go beyond using other people's characters, but these are some of those training and playing grounds that folks begin to work on, you know? I was going to say, the, um, the interesting you brought up D&D, the amount of creators that I'm finding out have played D&D and honed their skill through that is amazing. Like, there's at least two that I know of this weekend that had, like, a vacation and they went to a cabin and played D&D. Um, there's yeah, a yeah. few other there's a few other creators that I know go to Gen Con every year that like love role-playing games and D&D and Pathfinder and a whole, whole bunch of other stuff. Um, there's a bunch that I've talked to that like have said that this is kind of how they grew up, grew up telling stories and how they kind of got into it. So I, I kind of find that fascinating how much this game that used to be frowned upon was almost like a teaching tool for all these big-name creators now. That's absolutely true. I mean, there's also a really wonderful essay by Sean T. Collins about the virtues of, like, learning to play D&D when he was younger that I recommend folks check out, I guess, on Warpalizer is the site. Um, really short read, but really good. Uh, and, you know, I definitely think it's like a workout for people's brains, and it makes you use parts of your brain that you don't always get access to, especially when you're an adult and you're doing other kinds of work for a living, which is one of the reasons why I am actually making a point of, Frank and I are both making a point of doing, we started doing a D&D game with some of our friends last year, actually. Um, nice. We don't play nearly often enough, but with getting married and all that work and whatnot, everyone else getting married too, <laughs> but um, I do think it exercises important parts of your brain that you don't access otherwise. Yeah, Although I would say on... Frank oh. accidentally named his character Glenn Greenwald. <laughs> I was like, you realize that your name sounds almost the same as Glenn Greenwald. He's like, wait, who's Glenn Greenwald? And I told him, I was like, oh, oh, yeah, okay. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> really <laughs> if I ever get to with Glenn Greenwald again, who I have met, I will let him know that my, at that point, husband role plays with him in Dungeons and Dragons. Really funny. It's a, yeah, my, for, it's a pretty good name for a ranger. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, my uh, my issue is the, the very little of role playing games I did do. They tend to go off the rails really, really quickly. Um, so yeah, I, I was never a huge role playing person, but 
Little I did. Well, you need to have a really good DM, and you know, you, you need to, it, it's, it's it's work, and it's you know, like anything else. But I, the, the virtues of doing it have been really clear from talking to all these folks. Even John DiMaggio actually used to do D and D, and he's not he's not a writer. He is now a filmmaker. I don't know what folks heard or if I mentioned that they did a documentary about voice actors called I Know That Voice, and I got to see the trailer of it, and it looks like tons of fun. Um, him and um, Tim, uh, Paulson, Rob Paulson, the voice of Raphael, and Pinky um, and the Mask cartoonists, as also has a great podcast of his own, are also involved in the show. And um, that show's going to be on demand on cable in December, actually. So folks will be able to watch it. Uh, the documentary, sorry. And the documentary just looks incredible. It's mm-hmm. a Absolutely remind me on that because that, that's really a fascinating one. That'd be really cool to watch. It's something that I'd be into. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to that. Um, so he was all over. He was all over the show. I mean, we got to see uh, what, um, a lot of voice actors there for his panel. So, well, I do want to make sure that we get some time to talk about comic comics as well. So, thank you to everyone who around while we talked about animation and the past uh, half hour. Um, yeah. All right. So you you seem to have spotted a lot of cool indie stuff at New York Comic Con. I did. Yeah. Um, I was at... Well, I know I spoke about 1001 uh, Arabian Nights last time, but I want to just talk quickly about The Fifth Beetle, which is coming out on Dark Horse. Which I guess isn't super indie, but it's you know a fairly indie thing to do. Um, the art on that is stunning. It is some of the best that I've seen. Uh, I, you know, I've grown up my whole life being a huge '60s obsessive weirdo. When I was a kid, my mom didn't have the heart to tell me that Jim Lennon was dead, even. Um, so I didn't know he was dead until I was like an element, like late late elementary school. At which point, of course, he'd been long dead. <laughs> Um, so that shows you the kind of level of obsession. And I feel like there's a ton of really horrible Beatles stuff out there. You know, I had no interest in seeing any of those stupid plays. I had no interest in seeing that stupid movie with, like, Bono doing I don't even It's ridiculous. It's like an insult. But this graphic novel, The Fifth Beatle, looks fantastic. The art is just remarkable. The level of research that has gone into it is remarkable. But the artistry is so good. You know, it's not just oh, this is all well-researched, but this is also really well-written and crafted and artistically presented and totally going to be nominated for an Eisner. Um, it's the kind of book you're going to want to buy and have in print because it's so pretty, and I think it's going to be uh, the Christmas Hanukkah list of um, anyone who has any Beatles fans in their life, regardless of whether or not they like comics. It's going to be a must-buy. The level of intense research that was done by the artist Robinson, Andrew Robinson, he said, he's like, I don't think I would have the energy to do another project like this for a long time, you know, to do another historical or to, like, uh, historical one like this because of the amount of research and time that goes into it. Yeah, really I mean, uh, we got, we've got our review copies, and I haven't, I've looked at it, I haven't had a chance to dive in yet. Um, I think it's out in November, so absolutely Great expect thing. us talking about that then. But yeah, so for folks who don't know, uh, so the fifth Beatles coming out by uh, Dark Horse, and the person who is writing it is Vivek 
Turi, who's also uh, he's an award-winning producer and writer. He's actually creating a feature film uh, on the graphic novel. And the graphic novel chronicles the life of Beatles' uh, little-known manager, Brian Epstein. Um, and Paul well, McCartney I, is actually... I thought Brian Epstein was pretty famous. I thought Brian Epstein was pretty famous. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, like, I know him, you know him. I would ask, say if you ask the average person, like, who is this person in music, they probably wouldn't. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah. You know, plus also it's been so long, like it's just a generation when I have a freaking clue who he is. So uh, Paul McCartney is quoted as saying, if anyone was the fifth Beatle, it was Brian. Um, and then the other interesting is it's uh, from the release that I got, so this is the groundbreaking project, it's because it's the first time a feature film about the band has ever actually secured rights to Beatles songs. Yeah. So yeah. it's a pretty big deal. Um, I expect this to easily hit... It's, I, to me, it's going to be like a march where I think it's going to top the New York Times bestseller easily. Um, it's going to transcend comics just like March. I, music fans are going to talk about it. Rolling Stone, I imagine, will cover it. Um, yeah. But but overall, like the, the things it talks about... Um, so it's the story of Epstein, who discovered the Beatles. He helped guide the band to international stardom as their manager. Uh, he secured the first record deal when no one else was interested. He brought him to the world stage. Um, I mean, like, he really brought the Beatles to light. Um, he died at 32, um, very, very young. Um, and overall, the, the, the film is going to be dealing with uh, you know Epstein's life, his sexuality, religion, um, while he's dealing with you know bringing the Beatles to the world. So overall, like this is pretty heavy stuff. True story, amazing. Like this is one when I was announced, I was like, hell yeah! Like this is what I'm looking forward to. This is March or like the top two graphic novels I want of the year. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, it was really here, interesting and heartening to hear how much of sort of political and social consciousness there was throughout the project as well. Um, yeah. You know, the comic writer was talking about the importance of bringing out underrepresented voices, and he spoke really openly about, like, how few comic creators there are out there who are white dudes right now in America. That is obviously, I, you know, thinking anime and Japan <laughs> story. Um, and... Uh, you know, they've been doing a lot of uh, partners, doing a partnership with marriage equality groups and stuff like that around the book, which I think is really wonderful. That's cool. That's actually, that'll be interesting yeah. to watch. Um, nice. That I didn't know about that part. Yeah, they were just announced it at, at Comic-Con. Cool. That's actually really neat. I'm going to have to follow up and see if we can drag, get more info on it. Um, yeah, when I, spoke, I spoke, when I spoke with the artist, he said that, He'd be interested in going on the show when the book comes out. So, oh, not nice. a little remember us. <laughs> that is seriously amazing art on this book. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, impressive. I mean it's it's a gorgeous book, really cool story. Um, yeah, I mean this is the one to watch out for. I mean that uh, it, it'll be. I would be shocked if it's not on numerous uh, Christmas and Hanukkah lists for folks. Um, yeah. Indeed. It's cool. Yeah. Um, so what else did you see? I mean, that was kind of, you talked about that. 
Um, three, which is out by Image. I don't know if you had a chance to read it yet. Not yet, but I'm definitely excited about three. If if you like me found 300 to be so racist it was actually painful to watch and or read, then you too will be excited to read three. The new comic is coming out from Karen Gillan and and um, Ryan. Oh, I'm such a jerk. We just had drinks together when he was visiting. Oh, let me. I'll Brian, who did Salter County. Um, I'm just a horrible person. But uh, Ryan Kelly, isn't it? Yeah, no. thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so I mean, we'll that's, definitely uh, be doing that one when it's on. Yeah, we'll talk. You know, we can, it's hard, yeah. though, with a name like that, like, what is the hashtag going to be? I was urging them to come up and, do, like, do, like, three a comic or, like, three comic or just, like, they're going to have to figure out a hashtag because this is not something that's easy to look up online right now. No, yeah, I mean, it, uh, it'll get buried because of the name, but it's it's a cool concept. Like, I read the first issue, and we'll talk about it next week when we can actually dive into more recent releases and you're, you've caught up with it, because I'd be very interested in hearing your opinion. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, Ryan's art is really strong whenever I've seen it elsewhere, and obviously Kieran is one of my favorite comic book writers. So. Yeah, it, uh, it's a cool combo, um, but we'll, uh, we'll discuss. Uh, was there anything else that kind of caught your eye that was not big two as far as releases? I think I hit on most of them. Um, you know, definitely with strong showings in terms of stuff, people really coming out for um, Rocket Girl and for a lot of stuff by Oni and, you know, the bigger, smaller publishers. Yeah, I mean, it, um, I'm trying to think. The Dark Horse, as far as big announcements, like Dark Horse announced a lot of crossovers. Um, which is cool. Dynamite had a slew of, of announcements. Um, uh, some big events next year, and Dynamite you know, has been doing more and more events, so it'll be interesting to see where those go. I'm trying to think what else. Um, Oni, big thing was Focus, and they launched Letter 44, which came out that week, um, and seems to have gotten a lot of praise. I just saw Fox News covered it, so good for them. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what else. That was the big stuff. I mean, it uh, it was like a very consistent indie, non-big two announcements. Marvel just really announced all the teasers, and that was about it. Nothing earth-shattering. Like, all the earth-shattering stuff came from Dark Horse, Dynamite, uh, Image, stuff like that. So, Yeah, cool. I mean... It wasn't anything interesting from Marvel, but everything, a lot, but a lot of things they're talking about all kind of came as like, oh, that's a good idea, as opposed yeah. to all too frequently when you feel like smacking yourself in the head. So. Yeah. Um, so the the one big announcement that came from DC, who had a very quiet convention as a whole, was uh, the return of Stephanie Brown to the new DC universe. Um, she's been. A fan favorite character has been around for for a few years. Um, pretty much every single convention you go to, if there's a DC panel, someone would get up and ask, "When is Stephanie Brown coming back to the DC universe?" Um, and the answers kind of varied from rather jackass comments to, you know, we have to wait 
you can't just bring everyone back, which I understand that one. So this one, um, the girl who normally asks uh, the question was in the audience, and they went and uh, rumors, they asked her to ask the question, and she's like, why? You're always going to answer the same thing. And they're like, we might have a different answer this time. Um, so they kind of planted the question in a way. But uh, So the, the reaction I noticed, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, it was generally positive, I and mean, people were happy that this announcement has happened. Um, the character's going to be back in, in Batman Eternal number three, which was the big announcement from DC, is that they're doing a weekly Batman comic, um, which is going to expand upon the Batman universe. So could be cool, could be horrible, who knows. Uh, but nice to be a way to, for them to show off uh, ancillary characters, so that's cool. Um... Uh, the one thing I noticed was there was some things where some folks were like, why aren't you, you know, where's Cassandra uh, Kane now? So, you know, they got the one, they want the other, who's another fan-favorite character. Um, wasn't as huge as I thought that would be, but I still saw it on the kind of side a little bit. Um, so even with the, the praise of DC, it was, like, short. But, uh, so what are your thoughts about the character coming out? We don't know how she's coming back. We just know she is coming back. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I would, of course, love to hear back a spoiler. You were pointing out there's a big opening for New Robin. Um, I think what's interesting is this is clearly the product of fans lobbying, and I'm curious to see how much DC will or won't acknowledge that. The activism paid off. Yeah, I, so I, I firmly believe they had plans to bring her back at some point. Um, and I do somewhat agree with him. You can't just throw three billion characters in there. You have to, you know, as, as the DL keeps on saying, we're looking at year one, two, three, four, five type of thing in the universe, in the DC universe. So it's not like there's this long history. Um, so you need to introduce characters slowly, and that's totally cool with it. And about two years is about what I would expect when they would have brought her back. So it's pretty much right on time, roughly. Um... But mine would be the big question that I've got. Um, did they choose... Because you could have Cassandra Kane and Stephanie Brown fill very similar roles, which is why I don't think they brought both at the same time. Um, my question would be is, did they choose Stephanie Brown because of the incessant questions and fan lobbying, whatever you want to call it, um, over... Kane. Yeah, yeah. And they really need her, too. Um, but yeah, I mean, the what, like, do you have guesses as to what we might expect from the character? I haven't. I mean, have you heard anything? I haven't a clue. No, no. I mean, we know the issue that she returns in, and that's about it. And it's about what we got. Well, cause, so it brings out another thing. We talked about it last episode is if she comes back in Batman Eternal number three and that issue sells either the same as the week before or continues to drop. Because usually when comics sell, they drop consistently. Like first issue is great. Second issue drops. Third issue drops. Fourth issue drops. There's like a whole formula about it. Um, you know, what... What would you think DC's reaction would be 
to see that. Like I, I out of all the companies for them, for me, I would say that they're the most likely to be like, well, see, they didn't really care about her. Yeah, because they're dicks. I feel like DC is hiding from the fans a lot right now. Like, I feel like they weren't, there's reasons they weren't doing as much of press and rigmarole releases at the convention. Yeah, I mean, so actually this is a question, because I, uh, they they did their Superman display at near Comic-Con. They had the same display at San Diego. Um, did they have like an actual booth booth there? Because when folks were describing like, oh, DC is not having a booth this year, but they're going to have this display. And I would say last year you know, at San Diego, it was like a big open area and the the outfits were kind of in the middle. It looks like they had like a tarp and just the, uh, you know, the costumes were there. Um, but did they have like an actual booth you can go to? I don't recall. I really don't. <laughs> Clearly, it was very memorable. Um, yeah, I don't. I actually didn't go to either there or Marvel booth at the Comic Con. There was just didn't seem like there would be a reason to. But maybe they didn't even exist. It's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I did notice it after like Batfleck, after the the gay marriage issue. Um, and and Williams uh, being booted for Batwoman, um, I have noticed that they are they are quieter these past few months. Mm. I feel like they really know that they've angered their fan base, and you know what? If they're going to say f you to the fans, then at least they should be doing is trying to reach out to new fans by being more external focused to the non-comic book readership world, and they're not doing that either, so I'm not really sure who they're writing comics for anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, that's been a conversation we've had for quite a long time of of who the hell comics are reaching out to, um, and the the various lack of marketing. Um, I mean, we, we talked about it briefly, and I mean, there are good instances you have IDW, who is putting the first issue of their next big Transformer series in Transformer Toys, hoping to actually pull in those fans to the comic books. You know, brilliant idea. Um, they, and it was something that you pointed out to me, um, I hadn't yet posted about it, was they also are packaging My Little Pony comics into small digest-sized books so that you can better put them in things like Target and Walmart and other stores. Um, that might not be comic book shops, so it's like another thinking outside the box. Um, yeah. You know, th- there's two examples that are really, really good marketing um, going on. So, you know, there there are some instances where folks are trying to uh, expand the market. And it was interesting was they in an interview we did with uh, the guy from IDW, he did bring up that Transformers is one of the very few series that doesn't have a drop off. The sales are consistent. Um. Which is cool. Like that's a good thing to see. Um, but yeah. So do we want to do we want to go to the statistics statistics that I did send you? Uh, yes. Although actually, just real quick, I was going to say about sure. you know not, you, people not wanting to bring back every single character right at once. At once. I mean that of course is logistically required, but why would they bring back all of the various and sundry Robins but not have the more unique character? you know, come back, too. 
And I'm not yeah. saying there's anything wrong with having all the versions of Henry Robbins. It's pretty freaking implausible and ridiculous. But um, if they were going to have to tear something down for the launch, why do you have three, sorry, four identical-looking young men with black hair? Like, what's yeah. that about? Well, so the the one, so the Robin thing's an interesting one. One, you know, uh, they were well into the whole Damon Wayne storyline with Batman and Robin. They were kind of stuck with him. Like, I think if they were actually starting from scratch, there would be no Damien. Like, it would have been Tim Drake, Batman, Dick Grayson, no Damien. That's still a whole lot of identical-looking dudes, though. Oh, I don't disagree. It's all, they all look the same, which is, I always thought was really weird. Like, how is there not one that's, like, brown hair or blonde or whatever? And they all, yeah, like, don't disagree at all with that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was it's always been, it's odd. But at least, like, one of the Robins, I think they're kind of stuck with at least. Um, and they clearly had plans for the other ones. I mean, I'm, the bigger one is how has Child Protective Services not been called on him? But that's a whole other discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, is that everything for New York? Is there other cool stuff you want to tell us about? There, you know, the the panel on sort of diverse, that Mary Sue did on diverse representation in comics just had so many people trying to get into it. You couldn't even get in the room. Um, it was really great to hear a lot of the folks speak. I didn't even quite catch everyone's name. Um, Jim Engel, who, is, of course, is a great friend of the show, was was on the panel, and we'd love to have him back as well. Um, there was... Yeah. yeah, I'm going to need to figure out who to attribute some of these quotes to before... <laughs> All right, fair enough. Before I go into that, but I would really like to... I would love to break down that panel because there were such interesting conversations that were had on that. But there was um, a, you know, a science fiction writer and the woman who founded the Valkyries, which is an organization for women who work at comic book shop. And Tavila Jimenez was on there, being awesome as always, Jamal Engel, et cetera. So I'll, I'll pull those names together and get, get those together for you guys next time. Cool. Yeah, we should reach out to them and see if we can have like an online panel on the real show. Oh, I like that. Like try to recreate it. It'd be, it could be cool because I know like Heidi... At the beat, would love to to get in that discussion. She's totally jumped on our Facebook stats and are digging them. Um, awesome. So yeah, I mean that actually would be a hell of an idea for a super sh- or for a future show. Yeah, let's do it. And cool. I think there's some awesome commitments from different comic writers. I don't want to give that yet to our listeners, but <laughs> we should be having some cool guests from us pretty soon. Woohoo! Yes, yeah. we've actually we've got a few people that want to be on the show, so we might have spoils of of choices at this point, which isn't a bad thing. Yeah, and I know we want to have Emma back as well, which would be great. Yes, yes, we definitely need to have her back. She, I think, she had a cool idea to for a future a future show. Um, but yeah, so kind of going to the whole politics and comics thing. Um. So every Monday we have the our Facebook fandom spotlight of our marketing Mondays. I've kind of dubbed it. Um, usually it's just a breakdown of of all these likes and statistics of who uh, are comic book fans on Facebook. So usually you look at gender, 
um, age, um, education, if they have uh, gender uh, interest in a certain gender. Um, it, it's cool stats, the relationship status. But to, at some point, and I noticed that today, is Facebook has updated their... Um, the way you go out making ads is, which is the way I, I come up with the stats, and have given us like a uh, hell of a lot more stats. Um, you can break it down even more. So, kind of the things that we can now look at, which I think is kind of cool and freaky at the same time, is: Are people have they found a new job? Are they new, in a new serious relationship? So we can actually figure out the love life of comic fans. Um, did they recently move? Are they engaged? Are they newlyweds? Are they expecting parents? Are they parents in general? And what age are the kids? Which I still can't figure out the age of the kids part. Um, console gamers, are they interested in Hispanic, or do they have a interest in Hispanic things? I.e., are they is there a possibility they're Hispanic themselves? Um, are they iPad owners? Uh, what are their travel habits? And the one that really fits the site is political leanings. Um, which I thought is, is something that you and I have talked about once in a while, and I've always wanted to know the answer. Um, so here's the stat. Hey. I wanted to see if these, if you're shocked by this stuff. Um, so overall, there's about 12 million fans in the U.S. of comic books. Uh, it's pretty consistent. It's about 12.5 million fans. Um, so according to Facebook, about a quarter of those comic fans are considered politically active. What the hell that means? Couldn't tell you, but they're politically active. I mean, does that kind of seem realistic, high? To high? I guess that's what, what they mean by politically active. If they mean they're voters, I would definitely buy that. But politically active as in, like, go to a rally, contribute to candidates. I don't know. That, that'd be pretty remarkable, really. Yeah, I mean, the, my thought would be is politically active. They're measuring other online activities and that this might be a lot of armchair activism that you and I deal with a lot where it's a very soft interest but there is some interest, i.e. they'll like post a picture. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe they like sign a move on petition on occasion. Like, I could yeah. buy that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so here we actually get political leanings. So out of the... Crap, where are my numbers? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Uh, so about a quarter more politically active... Um, conser- or con- liberals outnumber conservatives two to one. Woohoo! Doesn't shock me. Um, with women not like making up a hell of a lot more of the of the liberal aspect of it, but not the majority. Like I was fully expect closer to like a fifty fifty split, but it's not quite there. It's like one point five million to a little over one million. Uh, but politically, political nonpartisan is twice the liberal and conservative groups combined. So if there are like 2 million nonpartisans, 4 million. But what do they define as nonpartisan? Do you mean non-party affiliated? Uh, that's what I'm guessing that they're looking at because you can, you can put your political party in um, your Facebook status. So I'm guessing that's what they're looking at. So if yeah, you're libertarian... You know, I don't have mine in my Facebook status. So no, I, I think a lot of those people probably don't put their party in their Facebook status. Yeah, mine is um, I don't believe in isms. I just believe in me. Uh, <laughs> mm. That's my political party. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, my guess is how they do it. They don't really tell you what it is, but 
you know, conservative, I think, would be, are they Republican? Are they libertarian? Um, are they some fascist right-wing group? Um, whatever the hell you can be on, I think you can actually just straight up be conservative on Facebook. Liberal uh, would be probably Democrats. Um, Green Party, Working Families would I don't be know if there. Like working Families would even be on their radar. I mean, they should be because it's like one of the hugest forces of change in New York State, period. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Maybe it's on there. Familiar. But, like, I don't know. I'm just presuming a lot of knowledge on the part of the people who are doing that work that maybe I'm not quite ready to think that they have. So. <laughs> um, but it was interesting. Like, so we, we finally have this cool data. And then the other one that I pulled, so Hispanic isn't, like, they are Hispanic. It's uh, they are interested in Hispanic-related products and services. No right, idea right. what all that means. Um, well, it doesn't mean they can't necessarily extrapolate their race. It could, you know, right. maybe mean they're married to someone who's of that race and they're involved in that culture themselves, for example. Yeah, I mean, it's and there really are also like, people who are Hispanic from all different races because it's also like, what country are you from? You know, so I, I can see why they would define it that way. Yeah, I mean, I figured that they are looking at these people's likes and maybe what events they go to or what language they have or what area they live in and are kind of extrapolating some of that info. Yeah. Um, so it's not 100% accurate. So according to this, it's 20% of comic book fans are interested in Hispanic-related products and services, hmm. which I thought was – that to me seemed a little high, but maybe I'm just off on that. Like, I, I have no idea. Um, I don't even know what the demographic breakdown of the U.S. is anymore, so maybe that's right on. Um, but the political – like, we finally have this answer that that we've been kind of searching for for quite a long time, um, which is cool because it's, yeah. it's a big question we've had. So we, we now know, according to Facebook, comic book fans are uh, mostly nonpartisan, but they are, you know, if they are partisan, they lean liberal or democratic or however you want to call it. Um, yeah, it does not surprise me. You know, a lot of people don't want to identify with a political party, even though there's pretty much one political party that has anything to do with any of their beliefs, the national yeah. Um So there was other stuff that I found, like um, I looked up console, console gamers. So this one I thought mm-hmm. was kind of fascinating. Um, it's about 1.24 uh, million people out of the 12 million. So about 10% are console gamers. Um, overwhelmingly men. Only 100,000 are women. Which really? that Yeah, that kind of shocked me. That one really shocked me. Considering, yeah, I, mean, cons- I am an example of that. I do not play video games on a console like ever. But that's because I have tendinitis. That's not because I don't like them. But, um, yeah. I'm surprised that it's so low. Wow. Yeah, it would be interesting to do um, to see... I'm going to try to break down that more a little bit. I think it would be kind of interesting to see how that how that escapes out in ages and stuff like that. But, I mean, that right there, you might have an explanation of why, you know, comics based off of video games are a little bit more tenuous and aren't always sure hits. And, um, yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, the, the... Let's see here. The one... It's about a million comic fans uh, are iPad, iPad owners. Hmm. Um, which, you know, comics all... If you have, to read comics on an iPad, 
Yeah, there was I couldn't shake out other tablets, unfortunately, so there there was like smartphones and tablets as the other choice and I was like, Who the hell doesn't have a smartphone and or a tablet phone? So that wasn't quite like you couldn't put Kindle in there, unfortunately, but so a million iPad owners kinda of interesting. Um newlyweds is six hundred thousand people. I find that really creepy. That I can find that. <laughs> Let's see what else. Uh parents well so the other was is parents. Um that there is more women that are parents. It's about um two point two million out of the twelve million oh. are parents. With women actually the majority of that. Um, and as far as the other one, travel is the most... Where the generation of comic fans are coming from. Yeah, that was the first thing I thought was like, sweet. So then now we've got about 2 billion people coming down the pipe. Um, and travel, yeah. um, 5 million comic fans like out of the 12 million like to travel. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I think, some evidence in there that convention should be hitting up fans no matter where they are and trying to encourage them to come visit, um... But yeah, I mean it's uh, it's kind of fascinating. So we're gonna have more stats as the weeks go by, and I really shake this through as to what fun we can have and what we can learn. Um, Absolutely, and thank you, Brett, for doing the hard math that other people have not um, been interested in doing. Because political folks, man, we know we know statistics, numbers. <laughs> and I'm the other. I'm wondering. I'm gonna be fascinated. I think over the next year is to watch the the political numbers. I really want to see the ebbs and flows of who's conservative, who's liberal, who's nonpartisan, and who's active as we go towards an election. I just think that there has to be a different way to identify people's political affiliation, like which organizations and pages they like, because I'm unaffiliated. I'm a huge left-wing activist. Like, it's not... I mean, that's even what... I work in that field for a living, even. So it's like... You know, the self-identification thing is really... I probably well, think there's older people, I'm guessing, and I don't know. Yeah, that would, that would be a fascinating one. I, should, I really should do that one. But the... the it does, So the problem is they, it's a lumped group. So they don't tell you the specifics of why they're in that group. I'm assuming based off of their activity, their likes, like, do they like a lot of liberal elected officials? Like, does that... Is that a definite thing? No, not necessarily, because I follow some conservatives to see what stupid things they have to say. And, you know, you and I work in this field. Yeah, yeah. You have to do it just to find out what your opposition's saying. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I'd imagine they've got to have some sort of... There's something there. Like, they're just not pulling this out of the air and, and being like, here you go. Because yeah. one of the big things on Facebook is... Uh, political, you know, reaching out to political organizations and elected officials and getting them to try to engage. So this is data that they would actually really care about um, to make sure that they're right. So, um, yeah, it was just interesting stuff. So, you know, as, as the weeks go by, we'll uh, track it more and more um, and we'll figure out what the, what the hell else we can do because there was so much stuff I didn't even touch. Um I giggled. I actually scrapped my original plan once I saw that today and uh, redid the stats and uh, so we could get make that happen because I thought it was like too good and too cool to pass up. Well, it's just funny. I feel like, you know, we take for granted that this kind of information is available to be used because 
we do online advocacy work, but I think that most people probably find it slightly terrifying that we know these things. Yeah, I mean, the one, um, so the Beat's been, has been covering this, and they've actually uh, been nice enough to allow me to pen articles. I'm going to start penning, like, a weekly article going, kind of summarizing what we find at the site and then kind of maybe extrapolating stuff a little bit. Um, and then there's going to be another article at ICP2 that's going to be more actual how do you use this stuff. Um, but Heidi was joking about it when I kind of told her, I was like, oh, I found this whole honey pot of more data, um, her response was just like, you know, now I guess I'm really just a, a marketing demographic, and I'm like, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. That's how we roll. Yes. Yep, yep, yep. Um, but cool. You, like, you can check it out at our site, graphicpolicy.com, um, for those who are data nerds or into politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people uh, who are into both are our favorites. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so with that, uh, I'm thinking it is time to wrap up. Um, and that wraps up another episode of Graphic Policy Radio, and you can catch us every day at graphicpolicy.com, um, and on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and more, all at Graphic Policy. And remember, folks, the best advice I can give you at the end of the show is always let the Wookiee win. Uh, with that, I'm Brett. And I'm Yolanda. And have a geeky week. <laughs>